0: the music into my Lutheran church. You may be seated. And actually the first time I saw a Baptist baptism, I about fell out of the pew. Because in Lutheran churches, you only got baptized when you were a baby. And when they baptized full people in the water, I could not believe what I was seeing. That was kind of interesting. All right. Oh, I forgot to put that on there. Sing to the Lord. Turning your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5, though we're going to be all over in Ephesians. I hesitate to call this exactly a reboot, but um, sometimes you miss the forest for the trees. So I want to make sure we see the forest. Um, I'll show a lot of the verses on the screen. But I certainly invite you to use your own Bible, because there will be a few times where there's too many verses, I can't put it on the screen. If you're using a pew Bible, Ephesians 5, the first half is at least on page 978, a few chapters before that, it'll be a couple other pages. I invite you to turn there. So, in Ephesians so far, uh, I'll say at least the last five weeks, we've moved slow, uh, moving slow through Ephesians ever since the beginning, but the last five weeks, it's like two verses at a time, two verses at a time, which is actually faster than when we did the the verse on anger because I spent actually three weeks, I think, on two verses. Maybe it was one verse. So anger, we really slowed down. So we're moving twice as fast, but it's still slow. So we've been been looking at it like a microscope. Now I want to kind of look at it as a telescope, and there's value to both. I'm old now, older, uh, and so when I go to different, a couple different pastors groups, one that meets up at Riverside and one that meets over in Springfield, uh, i can sometimes I get called on because I'm older to do presentations or to share things. And, and some of the things I, I tell younger pastors is, is to, to probably spend more time looking at things a little closer than what you do and this is based on what i've observed in the churches that i'm familiar with that so often all everything that's taught comes in like we're going to spend 4 weeks here on this topic or or maybe we'll do a book study and it'll take us 8 weeks or or 10 weeks and and there's nothing wrong with that but i find that sometimes a lot of christians spend their whole life getting doses of the bible in in 4, six, eight, 10, 12 weeks, and they never go deeper. And if you go decade after decade, and that's all the deeper you ever go, that seems unfortunate. It seems like there's value in investigating a little further. And as slow as I am, it could be a lot slower. Uh, my pastor, who I model probably my pastoral ministry after more than anybody, back when I was in college when I met Cindy... Uh, He was slower than I was in Romans. Uh, He was very slow, and what he would do is, especially in Romans, he would work through the chapter, however many weeks it took, and then at the end of that chapter, he would have a week where he taught the whole chapter. Like, now that you've heard it, all the, 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 the small pieces, he then wanted you to look at the chapter as a whole. And I think people valued both. I don't exactly do it that way, But that's kind of what I'm doing this morning. We've been going very slow looking at under a microscope at what Paul writes to the Ephesian church. Now I want to pull back and look at a bigger picture before we press on through the second half of chapter 5 and into chapter 6. So we're going to start with the theme of Ephesians. And I didn't look at any resources. This just basically we spent a lot of time in Ephesians to this point. And, and I thought, what, what do I see as the theme of Ephesians that's unifying everything that's Paul writing to the church? The churches. Our church. The churches, especially Gentile churches. If you've been here from the beginning, you could think about it on your own. And I also encourage you to keep reading Ephesians. Like, don't depend on me just to do the piece by piece. Like, read Ephesians. Look for themes. Look for connections. Look at how it develops. It's fascinating. Every book of the Bible is like that. But on Sunday morning, we're in Ephesians. So I encourage you to keep spending time in Ephesians. The theme of Ephesians, the way I'm understanding it, is God has a gracious purpose that he sets forth in Christ Jesus. Because the Bible ultimately isn't about us and what's in it for us ultimately the biggest themes of the bible are about god the book the bible is a book revealing god his character and it reveals things about us and it reveals what god does for us in christ but it's a book revealing god and it's for his glory and his praise more than anything else and that's certainly true in ephesians uh, because this is a a bigger topic, and we're not going minutiae. I'm going to use what I'll call proof text, verses of Scripture that I think support what I'm teaching. There's danger in that, because I could be taking it out of context, and you can check me on your own whether or not I am. I think chapter 1, verses 9 and 10 read this way. Well, I know they read this way, and I think it supports my theme. "...making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ." As a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. God has a gracious purpose. His will. His purpose. His plan. He sets forth that gracious purpose in Christ. In Christ. In Him. And then the actual plan is, as it's revealed here, it's for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him. All of God's redemptive purposes prior to the flood, After the flood, with the calling of Abraham, moving forward with the church, all of God's gracious purposes are accomplished because of who Christ is and what Christ did. I don't think they understood that in the Old Testament. I don't think they understood that as Jesus was dying on the cross. That's pretty clear. But if we are saved, if our sins are forgiven, it's because Christ who he is and how he died is a substitute for sin. And that's something received by faith. There's nothing you can do. It's believing who he is and what he's done. So that's the, the theme is God has a gracious purpose that he sets forth in Christ Jesus. Secondly, key words... Images and concepts, as I've read through Ephesians, some things that jump out as outstanding and take note of, and to see how it develops as Paul's writing this wonderful letter, would be, number one, this concept of riches and an inheritance. I think that's a fabulous theme, which ought to excite you, because by faith in Christ, you've got an inheritance, And you are a participant or somebody who has received the riches of God's grace in Christ. So, in Western culture, probably in every culture, there's a certain allure and attractiveness to riches and an inheritance. Well, this is one that's kept in heaven for you, according to Peter. It can never perish, spoil, or fade away. So, that's exciting news. That's one of the themes in Ephesians. Secondly... Ephesians has some very sharp contrasts, a very sharp contrasts, as does the whole Bible, which I'll allude to or show you in just a moment. But in Ephesians, the very sharp contrasts look something like this. There's a contrast between death and life. That's a pretty stark contrast, uh, death and life. And in a few minutes, some of you will be dozing off and it will almost look like death, but it's not. You're just tired and And the Bible says, you know, there's some that sleep in church. Uh, So there's death and life. That's a sharp contrast. Another contrast is conditions before and conditions after. Or that was then and this is now. That's a sharp contrast. The before is not the same as the after. What you were then is totally different than what you are now if you're a Christian. Another very sharp contrast is between darkness and light, which is where we're at in Ephesians chapter 5, where in chapter 5, beginning in verse 7, there's this sharp contrast between darkness and light. Darkness was then, it was before, now it's light, you're characterized by light. That's what we're going into, it will be really more next week than this week. Now, if I were to show you the sharp contrast of the Bible, you've got Cain and Abel, sharp contrast. You've got Jacob and Esau, sharp contrast. You've got Babylon and Jerusalem, or you could call it Rome and Jerusalem. You've got a contrast between flesh and spirit in the Bible. Augustine talks about this contrast. He wrote the city of God, which is much different from the city of man. The eternal city was Rome. They called that the eternal city. And then Rome was sacked. And Rome became ruinous. It wasn't the eternal city. Augustine said the eternal city is the city of God. That's the eternal city. Pilgrim's Progress, in his wonderful allegory, talks about the city of destruction and the celestial city. A sharp contrast between the two. The Bible's filled with these sharp contrasts. They couldn't be more different. They're opposites. In Ephesians, again, it's death, life, before, after, then, now. Darkness and light. Then one last word uh, that characterizes much of Ephesians is the word walk, which signifies the trajectory and course of a person's life. Your walk. What is your walk of life? How are you walking? Ephesians is all about how you used to walk and how you walk now. A lot of Ephesians could be viewed, I'm sure sure there's been many series preached in, in various settings where Ephesians is all about your walk, how you used to walk, how you walk now. Thirdly, chapter development and progression. This is really where we're going to spend most of our time. How these chapters develop, how they progress, how they build upon one another, how those themes are united in the chapters as they unfold. So my first movement, the first of these are movements that I've identified, relying on some what other people write as well. The first movement in Ephesians is in chapter one, and it's the first 14 verses. And it's kind of interesting because Ephesians starts off with uh, the opposite of fireworks. In fireworks, at least all the fireworks shows I've ever gone to, and it's been a long time since I go uh, But anyway, fireworks, when you go to fireworks, they, like, shoot off these fireworks, and they're pretty, and they're nice, and they're loud, and they've gotten a little more complex, but they save the the really big stuff towards the end. There's this grand finale at the end, and you know the show's over. There's no encore at a fireworks show. Like, they shoot off a whole massive bunch of fireworks, one after the other, they're just exploding, and then it stops, and you go home, and you're trying to go home with however many thousands of other people, and you're stuck there for a while. That's how fireworks shows work. Ephesians starts off with, with the grand finale. It starts off with the best news ever, isn't saved to the end. It starts off with the best news ever. The grand finale is what God has done from before the foundation of the world, and it includes the fullness of everything in Christ. It spans all of eternity. It starts off with the greatest fireworks show either ever. It looks something like this. Verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And then those just keep unfolding in those verses all these blessings in Christ that God has purposed and planned, which is the theme of Ephesians that I started with. If I add a little bit more to it, verse 7, in Him, speaking of Christ, in Him we have redemption through His blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. That's that key word, riches. The first time it shows up. We are richly invested with the grace of God in Christ. Riches. It then moves on. Verse 11. In him we've obtained an inheritance. Having been predestined to to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. It requires this hope, this faith. All that God has done, it requires and demands and will result in faith. And so the we who were the first to hope in Christ is in reference to the Jews, It's in reference to Israel. But it goes on because it doesn't stop there. Gentiles are included too. Paul then adds, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, our hope was in him, you believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. Jews are saved to the praise of his glory. Gentiles are saved to the praise of his glory. And we all have this inheritance. How do I know the church's Gentile inheritance is as good as the Jews' inheritance? Well, we find out in the book of Acts where there was some question about Gentiles and righteousness and forgiveness and their riches and their inheritance. They're like, They settled the matter with basically, hey, the same Holy Spirit we received is what fell on them. If they've received the Holy Spirit just like we have, I think it's the same deal. I think it's the same salvation, the same righteousness, the same inheritance, the same riches. All that comes together in this wonderful first movement of Ephesians. But we could ask the question, how exactly did these Gentiles get this inheritance? because that's a little bit of a mystery, which Paul will use that word mystery in Ephesians, we know a lot more about how the Jews came into this inheritance. Most of the Old Testament is a record of how did the Jews get this wonderful inheritance? Well, let me tell you. God called Abraham out from the land of the Chaldees. He was an idol worshiper as his family was. He called him out. And gave him this covenant promise. I will make of you a great nation. And in you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. I'm going to give you a child. I mean all these promises are given to Abraham. And we see them ever so slowly. By the way I count time. Those promises are ever so slowly developed in the Old Testament. You've got kings. You've got prophets. You've got. Better times, you've got horrible times, but never fulfillment. Never really the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world until Christ comes. Eventually it does. But we see how the Jews had this hope. We see how God fulfilled their hope in Christ. But the Gentiles get this inheritance and all these riches. How did that happen? How do we explain that? It's hinted at in the Abrahamic covenant. I I understand that. But we don't really see it unfolding through all the Old Testament. We see snippets of Gentiles who believe, who become like Jews. They become proselytes. But how is it the Gentiles, apart from the law, apart from all the customs and traditions, and how is it that they get the inheritance? And the answer is in the second movement of Ephesians. The answer is, is in chapter 1, verse 15, through chapter 2, and verse 10. And the answer is, it's all God's doing, it's all Christ's doing, and it's all of grace. The only way this could possibly have happened is because of God and his power. And so what is emphasized in one fifteen through 2.10 is the power of God to give Gentiles an inheritance that they weren't even looking for. It looks something like this. Chapter 2, verse 18. Maybe this is chapter 1, verse 18. He talks about having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. How is it the Gentiles of this wonderful inheritance? It's he called you. It's the greatness of his power. He's working his great might. He worked it in Christ. He raised Christ. He seated Christ. And you're with Christ by faith. It's all what God has done in Christ. It's all God's doing. God gets the praise. That's why it's to the praise of his glory. That we get an inheritance that we were never promised. Not like Abraham. But then you've got chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. And in chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, you've got this contrast of death and life. You've got this idea of walking and then you see God magnified, Christ glor- magnified his mercy, his love, his grace, our faith, all that received by faith, and, uh, and we're saved. So look at chapter 2 of Ephesians and verses 1 to 10, which are too many verses to show on the screen. So I will, uh, I will just read them and you can follow along. Chapter 2 says, And you, and he's talking especially to the Gentiles here, You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. That was your trajectory. That reflected your thoughts. That reflected your desires. That reflected your goals. That reflected your ambitions. That reflected the way you treated one another. You walked dead in trespasses and sins. Following the course of this world. Following the prince of the power of the air the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, which I think in that case refers to the Jews, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, Of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You used to walk this way. You've been saved by God's grace, his mercy, his great love with which he loved us. All of that, now you're walking a different way than what you used to walk. That's part of this great... But it's answering the question, how is it the Gentiles got all this? If a Jew would be like, well, I mean, we had all this history moving us towards the Messiah, and now the Gentiles have it all. Without all of the without all of the history, without all of the baggage, without all of the failure like we experienced? How would that happen? And Paul's answer is, it's the grace of God. It's his mercy. It's his great love. It's his power. That's how we got it. All the credit goes to him. Not of our works, not of our merit, but it's received by faith. It demands a faith response. Um, You have to decide, or you have decided, Are you trusting in, I'm a pretty good person, I'm not that bad, I mean I'm sitting in a church service after all, or whether at the end of the day it's like, when I stand before God, you know, I showed the video a couple, I think when I'm sure when I was in Ephesians two, the video of resume versus referral. If you think you're going to go before God one day when you die and say, here's my resume, Here's how often I went to church. Here's how much money I gave. Here's how I volunteered. Here's how I treated my neighbor. All these good things. If you're going with a resume, you're in deep weeds. God's not interested in your resume. The only, the only entrance into the kingdom of God that I know is faith in Christ. And when I stand before God one day, I don't want to proclaim anything on my resume. I'm like, I'm with him. My only hope, That's Martin Luther loved that. That was was one of the things Martin Luther, I applaud him for. He's like, if you're not sure of your salvation, look to Christ. Look to Christ. Don't look to yourself. You will fail. You do stumble. You do compromise. Look to Christ. Believe on him and his word and his promises. Cling to Christ. So, our salvation, particularly for these Gentiles who are included, It's all of God, Christ Jesus, and of grace. Our third movement, chapter 2, verse 11, through chapter 3, verse 21, starts off with, in light of all that I've just told you, therefore, remember. 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 What you were before, remember what you were before, and remember what you are now. So there's actually two contrasts there. Remember what you were, Remember what you are. Remember before. Remember now. That's the, great, that's the great third movement for you Gentiles. This remembrance of before and now. It's reflected in chapter 2, verses 11 to 22. Follow along as I read these verses. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision, by what is called the circumcision, circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you, Gentiles, were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise. You had no hope, and you were without God in the world. But now, so remember what you were, but now, verse 13, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, that's Gentiles, and peace to those who were near, that's Jews. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens. You were that, but you're no longer strangers and aliens. But you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being built being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord in him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the spirit so it's remember what you were it wasn't pretty you had nothing you were destitute you couldn't have been in a more miserable condition and now you've got it all. You've got the inheritance. You've got the riches. You've received it all because of Christ and the power of God. That's this great movement explaining how gen- Gentiles are included too. And he says, remember that. Never let go of that. Don't ever think, Paul writes later to the Romans, uh, we're called unnatural branches, wild branches. We should never get to the point where we're like, man, those Jews, they were so messed up in the Old Testament. We are so much better than they are. We are so much more together. We are so much more faithful. We are so much more obedient. We are so much more meritorious and worthy. Paul says you should never, as that kind of a branch, boast as if somehow it's because of you. Your salvation is because of God's power in Christ received by faith and faith alone. And Paul says, don't ever forget that. Don't ever forget that. I think we're ready for the next movement, which is chapters 4 to 6, which is where we're at. We're in chapter 5. We really, the new material begins about verse 7. But in chapters 4 to 6, what we have are practical instructions as to how this dramatic change in standing and status affects a person's walk. And one of the reasons why I pause to do this is because I so want to emphasize that these practical instructions are not what makes us right with God if the result of being right with God. If God doesn't work in chapters 1, 2, and 3 in Christ, we have no practical instructions. We can be better neighbors, a better neighbor or a worse neighbor, but it's not going to help us before an almighty holy God. But having been made right in Christ by grace through faith, Paul says, it affects your walk. It affects your trajectory. It affects how you live your life. It affects every aspect of your being, and he outlines that in chapter 4 and chapter 5 and chapter 6. Starts off, chapter 4, verse 1. I therefore, dot, 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 urge you to walk... In a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. You have been called to faith in Christ by God's grace. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling. Our walk isn't what makes us worthy. But having been called, we are to walk worthy of that calling that we have received. That's the idea of walk, which is so prevalent in chapters 4, 5, and 6. Chapter 4, verse 17. Now this I say in testifying the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. That word do is the same word walk. Why they would not translate it as walk, I can only imagine they think they want variety, and they don't want to use the word walk too many times, but it's easy to miss the connection. I don't have a legacy standard. Well, I've got it on my computer. Eventually, when I'm done going through a Holman Christian Standard Bible, it takes me a couple of years, uh, I'll get a Legacy Standard Bible because my understanding is it's a, it's a translation of the Bible, kind of, it's based on the New American Standard, but it's kind of produced by John MacArthur's uh, Master Seminary, I think, is the group it kind of comes out of. And I think one of their intentions is they try to translate the Greek word with the same English word unless they have a really good reason not to. So I can only imagine, I meant to check, I can only imagine in the legacy standard Bible it would say, now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles walk. Because they walk a certain way. You used to walk that way, but don't walk that way anymore. That was then. Do you have a legacy? Oh, does it use walk? Okay, so then I'm sure they wouldn't have deviated from that. That's, a, that's better, that's just better. In the futility of their minds, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, due to their hardness of heart. They become callous and have given given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Paul says, don't walk like that. Used to walk like that. Don't do it any longer. He says, that's not the way you learned Christ. If you are saved by God's grace, you learn to walk a different way. Now, they were baby steps. It was rough. You fell down. You still fall down. I still fall down. But it's a different kind of a walk than what I used to walk. That's not the way you learned Christ. Chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Which is an amazing statement. It's the only time we're explicitly, this overtly told to be imitators of God. Generally, Paul says, imitate me uh, as I imitate Christ. Uh, he might have said, imitate the apostles. He might have said, imitate David in the Old Testament. Read the Psalms for heaven's sake. He might have said, imitate some of the saints. Imitate, pick, pick you who you want to pick. He said, it couldn't be a higher standard, right? He says, I don't want you to walk like you used to walk. Walk a new way. I want you to be imitators of God. Imitators of God. But the key to being an imitator of God is understanding we're imitators of God as beloved children. He doesn't say become imitators of God to be his children. We're imitators of God as beloved children. Being a beloved child of God comes before imitating God. If I'm not His child, it will be hopeless and God and, and the Bible does not call me to imitate God. The Bible calls me to faith in Christ. Having, been a, having become a beloved child of God, I am now equipped and called to be an imitator of God. That idea of beloved children is an astounding statement, uh, an astounding designation or attribution that he would call us beloved children of God. I understand when Jesus was baptized or on the Mount of Transfiguration, I understand that God the Father from heaven says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. But when I was baptized, I think there's a sense in which God said, this is my beloved child in whom I'm well pleased because of faith in Christ. But that's an astounding statement, especially if you've paid attention to the movements that came prior to this wonderful declaration. Remember what I already read back in chapter 2 and verse 3. We all once lived in the passions of our flesh carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature, so it goes as deep as it could possibly go, by nature, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. How do you go from being a child of wrath by nature to a beloved child of God? How does that happen? What does that look like? And the answer is, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. I go from a child of of wrath by nature to a beloved child of God because of God. Beloved children, this idea of beloved children is something that the Bible celebrates by faith in Christ. The Apostle John, in his first letter, writes these words. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him. And I ran out of room for verse 4. But if I added verse 4, it would say along these lines, And everyone who has this hope in himself purifies himself as he is pure. Because you are a beloved child, you will purify yourself. You will walk a different way. You will be an imitator of God because you are his beloved child. John is celebrating this. Here's a question. Is Jesus God's beloved child? And the answer is no. The answer is no. And it's kind of nuanced. And this is where we'll kind of dive in and inspect something a little bit closer because I can't help myself. But it's positively, I think it's positively fascinating. It looks something like this the word for child here is technon in the Greek. It is almost always translated child or children. There's a handful of times it's translated son or something to that effect. And that's kind of unfortunate because the word really should be translated, I think pretty much in every case, it should be translated child or children. The second word that the New Testament uses is a different word, huios, usually translated son or sons. So this is usually translated child or children. This is usually translated son or sons. Jesus is called the son of God. He calls himself the son of man more than he refers to himself any other way. The son of man. Jesus is never called the child of God. He's the son of God. And there's a difference. I'll explain it in just a moment. You're a child of God. You're a son of God by adoption. But not like Jesus is the son of God. Jesus is the only begotten son of God. You are a son of God, Paul says, it's by adoption, just to be clear. So the difference between the child-children word and the son-son's word is this word emphasizes a relationship by birth. It's a consequence of something happening. Something happens that wasn't there before, and the consequence is this birth. All right? A father and a mother, there's a consequence that results in a child. All right? That's that sort of a relationship. It's a relationship by consequence. Jesus is not the child of God because he's not a consequence of anything. He's the eternal son of God. He's always been God. One God in three persons. Eternal Father, eternal Son, eternal Spirit. There's no consequence in that relationship. The second word emphasizes a relationship of shared traits or character. Jesus is the Son of God. He shares the character of God himself. He also calls himself the Son of Man. He shares the character of humanity. We are children of God. We were born by a new birth. The flesh gives birth to flesh. The Spirit gives birth to Spirit. By the Spirit of God, we enter into a new relationship by birth. And we are the beloved children of God. Chapters 4 to 6, then, are practical instructions as to how our new birth, as God's beloved children, affects our walk. In verses 2 to 6, he says, here's how it should affect your walk. He says, to walk in love. Follow along in your Bible, chapter 5, and verses 2 to 6. I'll read verse 1 again just for, to keep it all together. Chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. A fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no, here's our word, inheritance, that person has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. So the first thing we're told to be an imitator of God is to walk in love. The second thing we're told in verses 7 to 14, where we're supposed to be, where we'll be next week, is to walk as children of light. Look at verse 7. Therefore, do not become partakers with them, For at one time, you were darkness. Which is interesting. He doesn't say at one time you were in darkness. He says at one time you were darkness. And then he says, I lost my blood. But now you are not in light, but now you are light in the Lord. Then he says, walk as children of light. And Christ will shine on you. Then we have our third walk in chapter 5, verses 15 and 16. We are to walk as wise. It reads, look carefully. The English standard says then, if the word therefore. So verse 15 better would read, look carefully, therefore, how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise making the best use of the time because the days are evil. And then it goes on from there. So to be an imitator of God, walk in love. Walk as children of light. Walk as wise. All that should characterize a Christian's walk because by faith in Christ, we are his beloved children. What are your comments and questions? This is, this is the big movement of Ephesians. Where we've come from, where we're going, this wonderful progression of God's purpose of grace and how it is a life changer. It is a life changer. Riches, inheritance, everything to be had in Christ. Thoughts, questions, comments? Next week... I hope to do all verses 7 to 14. I hope to do this segment, which if I were a betting man, I wouldn't bet on me. Okay. <laughs> but that's my hope, because after that I'll be gone two weeks to go out east. So I'm kind of hoping I can, I can do that. We'll see how that plays out. Joe. So, uh, so when talks about sons of Pisces. Yes. <coughs> which word is that? That's the word sons. So that is a shared characteristic. But, so it's very interesting, okay? So he's emphasizing there, your characteris- you were characterized by your disobedience. But we're also called, back in chapter 2, children of wrath, which is a, a more of a genetic connection. By nature, you're children of wrath and you're sons of disobedience. By, we, people sin because they're sinners. Because I'm a child of wrath, I'm a son of disobedience. So that's an accurate translation. It's fascinating. If you, if you play that out, and there's, there's literally, I'm pretty sure if you take both words, you're talking hundreds of verses to play out the, the nuance between the two words, child and son. But Jesus is never called a beloved child of God. He's called the beloved son of God. The emphasis is on the shared character, because he's God. And that's so important. Somebody else thought, comment, question? Rick. uh, By nature, children of wrath. Yeah, 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 yeah. It is, it is the child word, yes, yeah. And by the way, that would be a fascinating discussion, which we don 't have time for. I mean, probably in my dream world in my dream world, one of the things that I would love to do is like we would have our, our typical Sunday morning main worship service, and then we would have a Sunday night where we kind of delve into the some of the nuance and and controversy of pretty much most of the bible there 's a lot of controversy and nuance involved it 'd kind of be fun to do on Sunday night delve into that a little bit deeper, that would, be, that would be fun. I mean, there's a lot of churches, what they do is they do uh, whatever the pastor preaches on some churches, they have Sunday school after the fact, and then they basically deconstruct what the pastor just said, which I'm not sure that's a great idea. <laughs> uh, yes, Alex. Uh, this is Greek. We're in New Testament, so we're talking Greek here. If it were Hebrew, uh, I'm no language expert. So uh, I rely on a lot of tools, and Hebrew is a lot harder than Greek. So Greek's a little more precise in my mind. The range of meaning isn't quite so broad as Hebrew. Hebrew has a very uh, wide range of meaning for a lot of words. And so context is very important. Context is important in both New and Old Testament. But in Hebrew, it's especially hard. And so in Hebrew, there's a lot more... We're not even sure what was just said, but here's our best stab at it. New Testament's a lot clearer for what it's worth. Theron? I don't know enough about it to disagree with you. That seems reasonable to me. Uh, I'm sure my son John would know exactly whether that's the case. Uh, Although trying to yeah, I don't pro- probably so that makes sense Okay uh, Terry I've heard it said in Hebrew that all words have a word based on family Yeah so to speak. Well that's yeah that's certainly true in Hebrew there's actually a lot of truth in that in Greek as well where uh, words in both languages are d- derived or a branch from a root word, which kind of does add flavor and coloring to the word we're trying to discuss. Hebrew is just harder. And my son John, because John, is, he gets it from Cindy. Cindy, so, she's much smarter than I am in academic. John loves school. Ryan and I are the same stripe. We struggled. Like, we, we are not school people. Uh, so John, John reads Hebrew. He translates Hebrew. That's what he does for fun on Saturday. It's like, <laughs> I'm serious. That's what he does for fun. He and a friend. Like, he writes papers. I'm like, some, if it's an Old Testament paper, I can read it. But I'm like, I don't understand a lot of it. Like, if you don't, at any anyway, rate, let's stand and be dismissed.